Welcome to the Fat Bird Ugly Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Al Frank, coming to you from Central Alberta, Canada. With me today is Raptor veterinarian Vicky Joseph. We will talk today about what falconers should carry in a med kit, including fluids and how to administer them. We will also talk about diet, impact injuries, bites and bite wounds, antibiotics, and triage goals. Thanks very much, Vicky, for agreeing to come on the Fat Bird Ugly Dog podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here this morning. So before we go any further, Vicky, go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Well, I went to school at the University of California at Davis, and I did my undergraduate work there. My uh, four-year degree was in wildlife fisheries and biology, and then from there I went on into veterinary school, which was another four years. Following veterinary school, I was out in private practice, and I did extra studies in avian medicine, and became board certified in avian medicine and surgery in 1995. And so that has been a fantastic career choice. Of course, in veterinary medicine, you know, at the clinic, we do dogs and cats, but just a large number of birds, including raptors. It was my time at the veterinary school where I really fell in love with raptors and understanding the birds of prey and their medicine. I volunteered at the Raptor Center there at Davis all four years. And then following school, I continued with wildlife, with the wild raptors coming in with injuries. I would volunteer for a nonprofit raptor rehab facility. And to this day still, I'm involved with the Bird of Prey Health Group, which is a nonprofit raptor rehabilitation facility that really focuses on raptor health. And, of course, it's all about trying to get these birds back to the wild. During that course of time, I met my husband, Andy McBride, who is a falconer. And, of course, like most falconers, he has been doing this since the age of 14. So it's not just being a falconer. The whole thing is a whole way of life. So we've been married 35 years. We uh, work together on many projects. Falconry is such a part of both of our lives. I am not a falconer, but I enjoy the sport of falconry, and I enjoy watching these birds perform. So my medicine has really gone down that path of bird of prey or raptor medicine, whether it be wild raptors, falconry, breeding facilities, and so forth. So I've been very fortunate with this career. From what I understand, you are now working as a consultant, having retired from private practice. Can you tell us a little bit about what that involves? Yes, I still go into the veterinary clinic for special cases, of course, just mainly raptor medicine at this stage. But since I am not full-time at the veterinary clinic, I started the Clinical Avian Pathology Services or CAPS. And the whole goal was to bring to individuals, whether they're falconers, raptor enthusiasts, rehabilitators, to really try and understand some of the health issues we see in our birds of prey and to understand how their bodies work. When you go to the website, you can go to the doctor's blog, which will have different articles on different subjects. One of my favorites is the test your knowledge section. It's divided in different categories like anatomy, uh, infectious diseases, parasites, things like that. And you can click on whatever category may interest you and there will be a set of questions. So there's a question, then you have the answer, and there's a picture that goes along with that question. That has been really informative for a lot of people. And then there is the webinar section. There's uh, respiratory, there's electrocution, there's lead toxicity, there's trauma in the field. And then on the Vimeo section, slowly we're adding videos like a cropotomy 
endoscopy, going down and looking at the normal trachea versus abnormal. So it's an area where people can go to get a little bit more knowledge on raptor health. I know from having visited the website that you also have an option where folks can request an online appointment with you. Have I got that correct? Yes. Yes, you do. They can do several things. There is a a contact page that they can go into. Lots of times I will get emails. That's probably the best. Okay, I'll put a link to both the contact page and your email in the show notes so that anybody wanting to access your services can uh, can do so. Now, you work with a number of people through CAPS, including Andy McBride, your husband. Tell us a little bit about what his contribution is and others that you work with. Yes, well, Andy, of course, my husband, he's my, oh, he's my right hand. It's amazing the birds that come to the uh, raptor rehabilitation facility. Once they leave the veterinary clinic, they may come like to our property where we do have some large flight chambers available. But he is always there to lend a helping hand, help hold the birds, give treatments if we need to. And what he does for the website is he will help in filming a lot of the videos and splicing together uh, some of the content we want to put up on the up on the website. Martin Benatar is also a falconer and a dear friend, and he is the main IT person. This gentleman, you know, he set the website up. He helped construct all the website, and he helps us upload the material in a nice, you know, visible, soothing to the eye manner. And then Yusef Herrera, another friend and falconer, he is of Arabic descent. He's actually from Morocco, and he does help us uh, with a lot of the eagle work. And at one time, our whole website was in Arabic also. And we did that for a while, but it was, it was very hard to maintain. So we offer it only in English at this time, but he was very instrumental for the dual language ability. Okay, now you mentioned eagles, and I know that you also work with the Committee for Eagle Rehabilitation Excellence, also known by its acronym SEER. Tell us about the people that you work with on that committee and some of the work that the committee is responsible for. Yes, I am. I just love this committee. This Committee for Eagle Rehabilitation Excellence, or SEER, was started out of frustration that we did not have the proper tools to really identify the needs of the golden eagle. Most of the literature we have and instructions from U.S. Fish and Wildlife or the state are to follow what's been written, but it's all about bald eagles. So when it comes to golden eagles, they are so different from the bald eagle. So this group which is made up of just some fantastic individuals. You know, we have three different raptor rehab facilities represented, one from California, one from Oregon, and one from uh, Arizona. We have four or five falconers representing different states and NAFA. They bring to the table the knowledge of eagle behavior in the field because they fly eagles. We have a fantastic eagle biologist, Granger Hunt, who spent many, many years on golden eagle behavior and the windmill effects and and just tremendous knowledge. And then we have a representative from the Native American community, David McKessick, that is from the Navajo Nation Zoo. But he offers us fantastic insight of how to help encourage conservation of eagles, and involvement of the Native American community. This group meets once a month, or at least every other month. We develop this beautiful document called Golden Eagle Rehabilitation Recommended Techniques to Increase Post-Release Survivability. It's a 30 to 40 page document. Two ways right now to get to it. You can go to my website, 
CAPS website, and under the main headings, you will see SEER, and you can click on that and read this document. Or you can go to the birdofpreyhealthgroup.org, and you can read the document there. This document identified the behavior differences between the bald and the golden. We identified the different age groups, nestling, fledgling, subadult, adult, all that, and their specific needs. And what we know is our biggest problem is with the fledgling golden eagles. We have a 4,000 square foot flight chamber. We put a young bird in there and they're around other eagles. They can learn behavior and we can give them live game. But if we take them from that flight chamber and then kick them out into the wild, most of those birds are going to starve to death. Bald eagles, on the other hand, are much easier to rehab because they're a social bird. And we can raise them in groups and we can let the first-year birds go at the right time of year when hundreds of bald eagles are congregating at a food source. We can't do that with the golden eagles. This committee is dedicated to improving the techniques of rehabbing, especially fledgling golden eagles, to encourage their sustainability once released. When eagles present at your facility, what are the major injuries that you typically see? Depending on where you are, Idaho, or Montana, Wyoming, there will be differences. But overall, electrocution is still a big problem. Lead poisoning is such a huge problem, as well as low levels of rodenticide, like warfarin. Now, in other parts of the country, eagles being shot, that is not uncommon. Let's uh, switch our focus and talk about some items that falconers should carry in a med kit. You have recommended carrying supplies that can be grouped into four main categories, food, bandaging, medications, and then, of course, miscellaneous supplies. Can you take each of those groups and give a brief summary or an overview for what they are and reasons why they're typically required? Yes, I sure can. Emirate Intensive Care Carnivore is a food source, and we will talk about this. We're going to talk about the carnivore care. We should have a variety of bandaging materials. Different medications that you will want in your medical kit would be some type of fluids like lactated ringers. I put in there artificial tears. You always want to have something in case your bird gets dust in the eye if you're out in the field or even a sticker in the eye and you're able to remove it as a lubricating eye drop. Quick Stop is a type of a styptic powder that we use in the veterinary clinic all the time to stop bleeding from the nails or the wing if you get a broken blood feather. You never put quick stop on a wound, ever, ever. It will burn the wound. It will cause some necrotic tissue in the wound. We talked about Benadryl because a wasp bite, bee sting, things like this, birds can have bad uh, allergic reactions. So having Benadryl, yes, it's a human Benadryl, and you want that in your kit. It comes as a liquid or a tablet. And then I put in there a cuddle bone for calcium. It's rarely needed, but those that fly the really small birds, they have no room for error. So if they get a little weakened, or maybe they haven't eaten, or maybe they get a little bit of the shakes, the cuddle bone is easiest because you can just flake that off the soft side of that cuddle bone into their food. Some of the miscellaneous uh, items you would want, like nail clippers or a nail file, uh, you always want some type of radiant heat. That would be something like hand warmers or the little heat to go. And these can stay hot for some time, for up to eight hours. It's good to have that. Okay, excellent. Now, one of the phrases that is often used is supportive care. And although people may have an intuitive sense of what that actually is, could you describe what supportive care is and under what circumstances should a falconer be prepared to provide 
this type of care? When we talk about supportive care, that is what you do in the first two or three or four hours that's going to stabilize that bird and buy you time. The very first supportive care is going to be maintaining that bird's hydration. If we don't do that right off the bat, then we are jeopardizing that bird's health. But what kind of fluids do we use? We basically have three choices, but only two of them are going to apply to individuals in the field. Crystalloid fluids are the most common ones we use, which would be like lactated ringers, normal saline, normal salt R. One of these should be in your first aid kit. Everyone is used to the term Pedialyte. This is an oral electrolyte solution, but we have to understand a very important concept. It has a carbohydrate source in it, which is dextrose. Raptors have very little glucose in their diets, and glucose solutions can hasten the death of a depilitated raptor because they cannot metabolize the glucose you've given them properly. Then some people have said, well, how about if we use zero sugar Pedialyte? Well, what does that have in it? It has sucralose, and that could be even worse for the bird. So I try to stay away from Pedialyte if I can. I would much rather give lactated ringers or normal salt R orally. That would be one of your safest bets. Colloidal fluids These are types of fluids that are given under the direction of a veterinarian. Natural products would include blood for blood transfusions, plasma, albumin, or hypertonic saline. But these colloidal fluids are only given in the veterinary setting or under the direction of a veterinarian. You won't have those in your kit. Okay, excellent. Now, clearly the safest option for falconers from the standpoint of providing fluids under a supportive care scenario, it would be most sensible to simply carry some of the crystalloid or at least one of the crystalloid fluids. Is there a best before date on those? Yes, there is. And you have to look at your expiration date on that. When you carry these fluids, it's really important that the falconer develop that relationship with their veterinarian, I would say 99.9% of the veterinarians would be happy to help the falconer prepare their medical kit and make sure they know how to use the items in their kit. As far as fluids go, you have to be taught how to give your fluids because you're going to give them either subcutaneous or orally when it comes to the lactated ringers, or the normal salt are. It's not difficult to give subcutaneous fluids, but you have to be taught where is the proper spot to give them. And you're only going to use a sterile solution to put under the skin. You can take that sterile solution of lactated ringers, or normal salt are, or even saline, and give that orally. But you cannot take an oral solution, and give it under the skin. You have to have the sterile fluids for subcutaneous administration. And if you're going to give oral fluids, you have to understand you cannot give it to your bird if they're really out of it, if they're laying on their side, if they don't have a swallowing reflex, because they can aspirate their fluids. If their GI tract is totally shut down, giving oral fluids will probably not help because the GI tract can't process the fluids. That's why learning to do subcutaneous fluids is in the best interest of the bird. If you could describe for us where on the bird, if you were administering sub-Q fluids, where would you do that? My favorite place to give sub-Q fluids is in the inguinal space. If somebody's casting the bird and you pull the leg out towards you, you take a little bit of alcohol, not a lot, just a little bit, 
and you part the feathers where the leg and the body wall come together, there's a V-shaped area of skin that's kind of loose. That's the spot you give the sub-Q fluids. You don't give it close to the body wall because you don't want to take the risk of injecting it into an air sac. The inguinal space can hold a large volume of fluid. That's my go-to place. Now, some people will use the wing web, which doesn't hold very much, or they will use the skin over the side of the back. And if you go low enough over the side of the back, that can be fine. But problem is, you have to know your anatomy. Where are the air sacs? If you give the fluids up in the cranial third of the body, you could inject inadvertently into the clavicular air sacs or the cervical air sac. That's why I like the inguinal space. It's the safest. Let's talk a little bit about volume. What volume should be administered? If your bird is injured or even ill, always assume it's 10% dehydrated. You cannot go wrong with that. Let's just take a red tail that weighs 1,000 grams. Their deficit fluid would be 0.10 times 1,000 grams, which is 100 mils. That's their deficit. Their maintenance fluid is anywhere between 50 to 100 mils per kilogram per day. Say you're going to give 80 mils. I'm going to give maintenance fluids twice a day. You're going to give 40. 12 hours later, you're going to give another 40. To that, you're going to add the deficit over a 24-hour period or a two-day period. Once that bird has received maintenance and deficit, then we go to just maintenance fluids. Just giving the fluids within the first 24 hours is going to buy the falconer a lot of time while they go to the veterinary clinic. Okay, excellent. Let's, uh, let's turn our attention to diet and particularly quality of food. As you mentioned, uh, raptor diets are typically low in carbohydrates, but can you compare and contrast percent fat and percent protein for types of foods that are typically fed to raptors? Oh, I certainly can. If we look at breast meat. These are averages. Wild cottontail, the breast meat is 23.7% protein and 0.2% fat. If we're feeding jackrabbit, that's 33% protein and 3% fat. Wild duck is 23.5% protein, 0.83% fat. Pheasant, pretty lean, 24% on the protein, 0.27 on the fat. Pigeon is 24% protein and 7% fat. But here's what's really important. Coternix quail, which makes up so much of the diet of the raptors, 19% protein, 10% fat. Feeding a raptor one food source is a no-go. We really need to vary their food source. The raptor's diet is rich in protein and fat. Generally speaking, raptors have little carbohydrates in their diet. Their glucose comes from the metabolism, yes, of the minimal carbohydrates they have, but of the protein and the fats that are in their diet. Their digestive process involves abundant secretions. So if that bird is dehydrated, their GI tract will not function properly. That's why we always go back to making sure the bird is hydrated. The other concept is that digestion is very energy intensive. So an injured or ill raptor needs that energy source so that they can readily digest their food. That's why if they're sick or ill, they're not going to digest their food properly. And that's why in your medical kit, I'm recommending Lefebvre's Emirate Intensive Care Carnivore. It comes as a powder, which is fantastic. It's highly digestible. It's easily absorbable. It's very balanced. You just add water to it to make it like a thin pudding consistency. And then the average amount you feed 
is roughly 25 mils per kilogram every eight hours for the first 24 hours. This can be fed either with a syringe, giving a little bit at a time into the bird's mouth, or with a red rubber feeding tube. But that's why you need this Emeraid Intensive Care Carnivore in your kit. Because your bird, if it becomes injured and ill, or if the gastrointestinal tract is not functioning properly, you will use this to maintain nutrition. I think that would surprise people to hear that quail is approximately three to ten times the percentage of fat relative to wild quarry, and it's approximately, say, two-thirds of the percent protein. My question for you is whether you can comment on the degree to which quail provides the appropriate amount of protein and fat if fed only quail. We can see many health issues by feeding just a quail diet. Believe it or not, the birds of prey are very prone to atherosclerosis. And of those birds, the peregrines seem to have a big issue with it. A bird that is actively hunting probably gets a lot of variation in their diet because the falconers often reward these birds with their kill. So they're getting variety. The birds in captivity, educational raptors, breeding raptors, uh, those that never get wild game are going to suffer the most from a diet that is only quail. And we can see fatty liver disease in the birds of prey over time, atherosclerosis or obesity. So a bird gets too heavy and then what? They put a lot of stress and strain on their feet. They're more prone to bumblefoot. So it's just like humans. If we don't have the proper diet over time, we can have medical issues. Okay, let's turn our attention from diet to impact injuries, such as striking fences, which are not uncommon for falconry birds, and they can cause some nasty wounds that involve trauma to skin, muscle, and tendon. Can you outline a basic wound management protocol should a falconer have a bird that strikes a fence, for example? Yes, I think... The take-home point that I want everyone to realize is in your mind, it should say impact injury equals internal injury. Any bird that strikes a fence with force, gets hit by a car, even hitting their prey species in the air with force, or comes tumbling to the ground, or fights with a jackrabbit, those birds not only can have an injury that we can see, but will often have some degree of internal trauma. Those internal traumas can be progressive and can take time to see. We see the original insult of an injury when it's external, but we have to realize, oh my gosh, what is going on internally? But if we're trying to deal with a wound, let's, let's walk through what you would do. Say the bird has a laceration, it's dirty. First thing you have to do is clean it. You can start with plain water. If you have the chlorhexidine scrub in your kit, this is a fantastic antibacterial scrub. You would use your cotton balls with water and the scrub, and you would gently, gently, do not rub tissues hard. Dab or gently moisten everything. Clean it gently. Rinse. Water is fine. Sterile saline is better, but you clean that wound as best that you can. Then you should flush that area with dilute chlorhexidine solution. Now in your kit, you may have the concentrated chlorhexidine, which is dark blue, and then you're going to dilute it into sterile saline or water into a very light blue. That's perfect for rinsing the scrub off, for rinsing all the dirt out, getting that wound as clean as you can. Then you take your cotton-tipped applicators or your Q-tips and you put a layer of KY jelly on the edge of the wound and on the feathers to keep the feathers away from the wound. 
this is water soluble, so it's not going to damage anything. Then you can either spray the area with veteracin, which is a fantastic antibacterial and antifungal spray, or silvadine cream. I would take a Telfa pad and put a layer of silvadine cream on the pad and you place the pad right on the wound. Then over that, one or two regular gauze squares for cushion. And now if it's on the wing, you're going to try and wrap that wing into a figure eight bandage. Often I would use cast padding because it's gentle and it adds cushion. Then follow it with what we call cling gauze. That helps to prevent the cast padding from slipping as you're doing your figure eight wrap. Then over that, a very light wrap of vet wrap, and you have to be careful not to pull it tight because vet wrap can be very constrictive. The last layer is what we call elasticon, and it goes over your padding and the edges stick just to the feathers to help prevent the bandage from slipping. And remember, this is a temporary bandage that we're trying to use until you can get to the veterinary clinic for help. Okay, so if I can summarize what would be a wound management protocol, the first step is clean, gently, followed by rinsing. Yes. Then adding a pad with some antibiotic cream. Yes. Finally using gauze and wrap. Did I get that correct? You certainly did. Okay, uh, let's turn our attention to bite wounds. And I know that those from cats can be a particularly major problem. And the severity of that problem can actually be delayed. Can you talk about bites, what to do immediately after a bird has been bitten, and what to watch for to ensure that falconers are not surprised by the delayed effects of a bite? This is a very important medical situation to understand. Certainly, a cat bite is probably worse than a squirrel bite as far as bacteria. We know with a cat bite that the bird can develop what's called a bacterial septicemia in 12, 24 hours. Any bite, any puncture wound can do that if it's deep enough. But cats are the worst. So a septicemia, it's a life-threatening situation. It's caused by the introduction of bacteria into the tissues and the bloodstream. It then spreads quickly and it interferes with the bird's immune response to fight infection. They get septic and they can die within 12 to 24 hours. Septicemia is fatal, always fatal unless it's treated. And you have to be very aggressive in your treatment. First thing you're going to do is really rinse that bite wound area really, really well. And I would use my diluted chlorhexidine. The most important thing is you have to start antibiotics immediately. And in bite wounds, we tend to use a combination antibiotic therapy, like Batrol combined with Clavamox. You may add an anti-inflammatory medication orally, for pain and inflammation. But there is a very important rule you have to understand with any bite wound. It's the three-day rule, meaning that bird without treatment will usually die within one to three days if not treated. Now, although it's relatively uncommon where I live, there are other places where they need to deal with snake bites. Can you tell us a little bit about how venom is classified and what the emergency treatment is? How does it vary according to the type of venom? Sure. So there's basically three types of venom. There's neurotoxins causing paralysis of the respiratory system or nervous system. There's hemotoxins that affect the cardiovascular system and the heart. And then there's cytotoxic meaning it's a localized effect at the bite area. The important thing to understand is that birds are not immune to the toxic effects of snake bites. And you really need to seek 
veterinary attention immediately. You know, in the old movies where you make the cut and suck out the blood and spit it out, okay, that doesn't work. So don't even do that. Flush the area again. Just flush the heck out of it. If you have an anti-inflammatory, you can start that, but you have to hightail it to a veterinary clinic, and it's usually an emergency veterinary clinic. There are some snakes that are so toxic, like in Southern California, we have the Mojave Green rattlesnake. They have a combination of neurotoxin and hemotoxin. And I've talked to so many vets that said they can't even save a dog from a a snake bite from a Mojave Green. So it depends on where you live. And this is important for all falconers to understand. When you're planning your trip, wherever you're going, you find out what poisonous animals are in the area. Gila monsters, Southern California poisonous snakes. What kind of snakes do they have in the area that you're going to be hunting? And the next thing you do is you find out what emergency clinic has the anti-venom. You are not going to carry this in your medical kit. It's so expensive. Most emergency veterinary centers that are in areas where there are poisonous snakes will carry the anti-venom, but it's specific for the type of snake that is in their area. So that's something the falconer needs to be knowledgeable about before they go on a trip. Okay. And what about administration of an antihistamine, something like Benadryl? Does that help at all? If that's all you have in the field, it would not be wrong to give anti-inflammatory like meloxicam and you have your Benadryl that you give them both and go on your way. Okay. So that is a useful tip. In a pinch, I guess you just simply administer an anti-inflammatory as well as an antihistamine and then get to the vet as quickly as possible in order to administer antivenom. Yes, and no matter what, that bird is going to be hospitalized. There's no way that they're going to be able to give antivenom and then you go. That bird usually will be in the hospital one to three days, depending on what's happening. All right. Okay, excellent. Let's turn our attention to triaging. A critical decision point for any falconer faced with a sick or injured bird, wondering whether to immediately take that bird to a veterinarian or to simply initially observe the bird for a period. Could you provide some guidance for when to take some time to observe and when to immediately seek professional help? Sure. So let's start first with an impact injury or something the the falconer sees in the field. That's an obvious injury. They're right there when it happens. It's easier at that moment to assess the situation. As far as there's a good understanding of what kind of impact, what kind of internal injuries could be there, or what they're seeing externally, like is there a fractured leg? Is there such a severe wound that you have to go immediately? More difficult is when a bird is just off. Bird didn't put over its crop right. Or I fed it this morning and gosh, we still have a little crop left. And the bird's kind of dumpy. That's a huge red flag. Because what you have to understand is birds are the master of hiding an illness. By the time we recognize something is wrong, it's been festering for several hours. When you have something, whether it be an acute injury that you saw happen or my bird's off and not feeling well, there is a place you always start with your triage. You always start with your fluids. That is going to be the most life-saving thing you can do for your bird. Don't give them cold. They should be between 100 and 102 degrees Fahrenheit when you give them subcutaneously or even orally. And I forgot to mention that it's very important when you have your fluids, you never let them freeze and you don't let them sit in the hot sun. Even your antibiotics, if you let things get too hot or they freeze, they become inactive. If that bird needs supplemental heat, make sure in your medical kit you have your little heat-to-go pads or your hand warmers that you can activate. You never want the bird to be directly on a heat source. 
but you can put a little towel over that heat source, put it in the kennel, it will give you some radiant heat. When birds are stressed or injured or sick, we like to maintain that temperature around 75 or even 80 degrees. You have to be very careful if your bird has head trauma, though. When a bird has head trauma, you don't want to heat them up to 75 or 85 degrees in their environmental temperature because you don't want to cause dilation of the brain vessels too quickly because you can get more leakage or edema on the brain. But other than that, make sure the bird is comfortable at the environmental temperature. Once your raptor is hydrated and stable, that's when you can provide nutritional support, but not before. If you don't have that GI tract functioning or the bird's not hydrated and you give them even carnivore care, it's going to sit there. It's not going to move through. And then you're going to get toxin buildup. If you have your antibiotics, you have to understand how to use them. Say like you get a deep puncture wound from a cat or a squirrel. That's when you start your combination antibiotics. For straight lacerations, you clean and clavamox is good. That's fine to start. If you have a metabolic illness, diarrhea, vomiting, or something internally going along, then a safe combination until you can get to the vet is your Batrol and your metronidazole. The thing you have to remember is that any of these medications can cause regurgitation or an appetite. But what I have found is if you take your medicine, dissolve it in some of your carnivore care, maybe you dissolve it in two or three cc's and give that orally, they tend to hold down their medication much better. You may have to add your anti-inflammatories, but you have to be cautious because anti-inflammatories can be hard on the kidney or liver. And you have to make sure they're hydrated before you start using them. And you don't want to use them more than five days. So your triage plan is a temporary plan until veterinary medical consultation is obtained. And that's how we have to approach our triage plans. Okay, that's hugely helpful. So let me summarize again. Step one would be administer fluids at approximately body temperature. Add supplemental heat applied indirectly where the exception is head trauma. Once stable and hydrated, that would be the appropriate time to feed a bird. And administration of antibiotics and anti-inflammatories, but that varies with the type of injury. Exactly. Okay, that's excellent. Let's, let's talk about antibiotic use. Can you tell us why antibiotics are ineffective for viral infections? And also maybe some comment on the importance of knowing the organism that is responsible for the infection prior to treatment, if that's possible. Certainly. Remember that bacteria and viruses are two different types of organisms. There's very few antiviral medications that are specific to treat the virus. Uh, we think of acyclovir as something we will use specifically for herpes virus. We try to mitigate the effects of the virus on the tissues, but there's very few specific antiviral medications. Bacteria, on the other hand, one antibiotic may work for a staph or a strep bacteria, where another one won't. And if we choose the wrong antibiotic, then it's like we're not treating this patient at all for their bacterial infection. In the best case scenario, a bird that is sick or has a wound and you want to start antibiotics, you culture the wounds, you culture the fecal matter or uh, respiratory secretions, and then you start antibiotics, waiting for your culture to come back and tell you, oh, yes, you can use this and this and this antibiotic. In the real world, that is not done every time. Cultures are very, very expensive. They can run easily to 250 So how do we get around that? Veterinarians often have to decide on broad-spectrum antibiotics. 
a veterinary, say, gets an animal with a urinary tract infection, they're going to know that this class of antibiotics is the best to use for urinary tract infections. For standard skin infections, a staph, a strep, sometimes clavamox will be fine. So the veterinarian, based on scientific research over the years, will pick classes of antibiotics that have been shown to be the best for this type of illness. I hope that makes sense. It certainly does. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is because of the time limitation that falconers have when administering a particular antibiotic for a particular condition, what they need to do is simply administer something that's broad spectrum. Yes, and specific for that type of wound. It's not one medication will treat all. Okay, and you know, it makes sense to me now that you might comment on one's relationship with your veterinarian. It seems to me that it would be handy to be able to have somebody who you can access immediately to get some advice relative to what injury or illness you're facing. Yes, and I will tell you that I think 99.9% of veterinarians would be thrilled to have an office visit where the falconer's coming in, they don't have a sick animal, there's no crisis, their whole visit is to talk to that falconer and help guide them on what type of items they should have in their medical kit. That's a win-win situation because veterinarians like to work with clients that are proactive. And if you have a great relationship with your veterinarian for your dog or your cat, that's a perfect place to start. Yeah, I think that's excellent advice. Paying for an exam ahead of time to get help to put together a med kit and some clear advice on how to treat the various types of injuries could, in fact, result in cost savings later on in the whole process. Absolutely. You know, let's turn our attention to some of the things that you might have experienced in your practice. Why don't you tell us about a couple of cases where an outcome was quite precarious but ultimately successful? I'd be happy to. I have two cases that come to mind. They're very incredible cases. One involves my husband's goshawk butterball. This is typical of what happens in the field post-trauma. So Andy was out hawking in one of the fields around where we live. His uh, Finnish goshawk and his English setter, they were hunting cottontail and jackrabbit. And butterball's a really aggressive hunter. She took off after a rabbit. Andy had telemetry on her. And then she disappeared. And he's going, well, where'd she go? And of course, you know, it was probably like a quarter of a mile. So he's following the signal, got to the signal, went past this six-inch round PVC pipe that was jetted out of the ground, not straight up, but coming horizontal out of the ground. And then the signal went away. So he backed up and the signal was coming right at the pipe area. And then, of course, the English setter was pointing inside the pipe. There he is out in the field. She went in the pipe after the rabbit, feet first. Her head was kind of cranked back and her wings folded back behind her. That's how she entered the pipe. So Andy took a tape measure and put it in the pipe and then could figure out where she was. He had to come home, get picks and shovels and saws, and get back out to the field. He had to dig the pipe because it was only sticking out about a foot, foot and a half. She was in about three feet. So he had to dig up the pipe, and then he had to cut the pipe so he could get to the side with her feet and pull her out of the pipe. So that took about three hours. He gets her out of the pipe. She gets up on his glove, and of course she's standing there with her head droopy and her wings droop. So what does he do like any good falconer? He feeds her. And I thought, oh, dear. So I didn't know all of this, of course, and I'm at work, and it's 5 o'clock, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I get to go home. I'm so tired. 
And here comes Andy, 5.30, walking through the door and explaining what happened. This wasn't actual impact, but kind of was. She was being squished. This is where you have to understand impact injury equals internal trauma. So there I have this goshawk on his fist, and she's got a little crop, and she's really stressed. So the first thing to do is supportive care. We cast the bird. I give her a physical exam. Her heart rate was very rapid, a little bit irregular. He told me how she was trapped in the pipe, so I knew we were going to have some muscle issue. We cast her gently. I gave her fluids, started injectable, anti-inflammatories, and then we put her in one of the hospital cages. Now, I gave her a little bit of sub-Q fluids, and she was really out of it, so I put her on IV catheter and continued her IV fluids. She's standing quietly in her hospital cage. I wait about an hour just to give her time, just to relax, get things going. Then we take her out again, and I take blood for a full panel, get that sent off to the lab. So after about three hours of fluid therapy, I disconnect the IV line, bring her home, and I gave her another set of fluids close to midnight. Next morning, she was so much better. She had passed over her crop. We went back to the clinic. The reason I only started with strong supportive care was I was not going to anesthetize a bird in this condition for an x-ray. I didn't care if there was a fracture in her shoulder. It wasn't going to make any difference. The most important thing is I had to protect her heart, her liver, her lungs, her kidneys, because she had a crushing injury. That's how I looked at it, being caught in that pipe. So the next morning, she was standing more alert. Her wings were in a normal position. Her blood work came back. And the CK, which is an enzyme we look at for muscle, should be around 350 up to 800 on a bird that's actively flying. Hers was 30,000. So I knew we had significant muscle damage. And that's why it was the right decision just to do all the supportive care and keep that supportive care going while her body is trying to recuperate. Her heart sounded great, so we did anesthetize her. I did take x-rays to rule out any fractures of her shoulder. I also did an EKG to make sure her heart was fine, which it was. And all of this only took 10 minutes under anesthetic. So this bird in the end, was so lucky. No fractures. All the muscle enzymes came back to normal. Her kidney function was good. Her liver function was good. The only thing by feeding that bird was, one, I didn't know what the GI tract was going to do on the day of the insult, but we started her fluid therapy right away, and her GI tract was fine. But I took blood on this bird, and any time you take blood on a raptor, when they have not had a 12 to 24 hour fast, your uric acid level, which reflects kidneys, will be very high. And that's because uric acid is one of the main metabolites of protein breakdown. So we rechecked her blood a couple of weeks later. It was fine. The bird never has flown as aggressive as she used to be. And as she slowly ages, she's more reluctant to fly hard. So he doesn't hunt her anymore. She's a great breeding bird. She gives beautiful babies, but he does take her out every year during falconry time just to let her fly around, get out of the hawk house, get in some condition. So a happy ending for that bird. We were very lucky. That's an incredible story. I mean, (laughs) for any falconer to lose a bird, and then ultimately find it in a pipe. What on earth do I do next? And I thought you were going to say to me, so the moral of the story is, in addition to all the things that you've told us to carry in your med kit, you also now need to carry a shovel, a pick, and a saw. I know. He did not have that with him. I can only imagine the stress he was under. I mean, I didn't know any of this until he walked through the door with his bird. I knew he was on his way that the bird was injured, but I didn't have the story. 
but oh my gosh. And he took pictures of the pipe in this. It was, it was incredible that this bird was okay and that he was able to locate her in the pipe. For sure. And what about the second case that you mentioned? This case is really interesting. Of course, it's another falconer's bird, uh, a very wonderful individual. Let's see, this was his peregrine. And they were in Nevada, probably six hours from the veterinary clinic. And the bird sustained an impact injury. I think she hit a fence and caused a degloving injury on the inner thigh and along the leading edge of the wing. He did call. He had no medical kit with him. Uh, we talked about what to do, and I said, well, you need to get her here. They couldn't be there till the next day, of course. So he arrives at the veterinary clinic, and we have a substantial, probably about three-inch degloving injury. Degloving is where the skin and the subcutaneous has all been ripped away, and you have muscle and tendon exposed. And then on the leading edge of the wing, and I can't remember which wing it was, there was another type of degloving injury. And I was very concerned about what we call the patagial ligament that's on the leading edge of that wing. If that ligament gets damaged and can't be repaired, then the bird pretty much becomes flightless. So of course, the bird came in. We did our standard workup, which at this time would be the fluids. Certainly, we started antibiotics, anti-inflammatories. We start that, and then we wait. Later that day, we did anesthetize the bird. We got whole body radiographs to always look internally, because remember, impact injury equals internal injury, and we did our blood work. The problem we had with this bird is that the wounds were so contaminated from the injury that we had to do a series of what is called wet to dry wraps. We clean the wound, clean, clean, clean. Then we put on the saline medicated wrap that tends to dry. And as you start to unwrap the wound, the leg wound and the wing wound, the material that we use gently pulls away necrotic debris. So a wet to dry bandage keeps the tissues moist, but helps to pull out debris. So we did that. We had to do that for about four days. I didn't leave the bird in the veterinary clinic all that time. Birds, they have a hard time in the veterinary clinic. We try to get them into a normal spacing as soon as we can. This gentleman lived about four hours away. So I told him, well, you can't take this bird home. It's going to have to stay. So Andy and I now become the caretakers. Andy and I at home did the wet to dries twice a day for about four days. Then we went back to the clinic, and now we start the surgeries. The surgery or debridement surgeries under anesthetic, full anesthetic, was done by Dr. Sarah Anger. She is one of our uh, doctors at the clinic and very good surgeon. I'm an internal medicine specialist. My job for any of these birds, whether we're in surgery or not, is to make sure that they stay alive so that we have a live bird to send home. So she does probably over another week, a couple of debridement surgeries. And we had the last surgery she did, the wing was looking really good. That was going to heal no problem. It was the leg that was so involved. There was such a large gap, probably three inches long by two inch wide, two and a half inch wide. There was no skin. So what she did when it was finally time to close this wound, she made a bunch of little tiny incisions. It looked like a bunch of little lines up and down the leg around each side of that wound. And Andy said, oh, they'll know if you say it looked like expanded metal when you pull it. So she loosened up the skin by all these tiny little micro incisions and was able to pull the skin edges together, but it was a tight close. And the only way we were going to prevent that wound from dehissing is I had to put that bird in a really protective, solid wrap so it, the bird could not move the leg. Could move the toes, couldn't move the leg. So again, 
we bring the bird home, Andy and I are the caretakers, and I have to change that wrap about every three days. That went on for about two weeks, and then it was looking good. I changed the wraps every four or five days, and finally, after two months, the bird went home. But I thought, oh my gosh, this was a nasty wound. That is a very intensive treatment regime, no doubt. And from my perspective, Andy was bang on. I know exactly what you mean by expanded middle. Yep. That's he said. Just say that. They'll understand what it looked like on the sides of the, the wound from all the tiny little incisions she had to make to get enough stretch of the skin. Yeah. So that some of the skin that had initially been there prior to the injury sounds like it had been entirely removed. Yes. That's what a degloving injury does. It just it 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 just takes that layer off and you can't replace it. Except with skin grafts and, and special surgeries. Yeah, and then skin grafts on a bird, where do you take it from? Well believe it or not, the best place to take a skin graft is over the thigh. Now the raptors don't have a lot of fat on their skin, like in waterfowl. It works really well because there's a nice thick fat layer under the skin, and that's the that's what you want when you have a skin graft. So we can do it in the birds of prey. We're just a little limited, and it may not be always as successful as it is like in waterfowl or chickens that have a more heavy layer of fat under the skin. Okay, interesting. All right, now I typically have what I refer to as my rapid-fire questions for each of the falconers that I've spoken to. Now, you're not a falconer, but Andy is, and you should feel free to answer these questions with Andy in mind if you wish. Apart from the first one, And the first one I'd like you to answer from the standpoint of your veterinary experience. So what is the best advice you have received? The best advice I have received? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to say the best advice I ever received as far as my medicine goes in birds is... You be aggressive in your treatment because you can always take treatments away. If you wait on a bird before you institute treatments, you've lost the battle. Interesting. That makes a ton of sense. And I guess the trick there is to know at what point your treatment is overly aggressive and when to cut back. Absolutely. And that's where your training as a veterinarian comes in. What what has helped me the most is when I get a sick bird in, I put categories in my mind. I have certain categories. And when I teach the veterinarians at the clinic, you know, on bird medicine, I said, this is what helps me the most. I put everything in a category. Then I don't miss anything. And my categories is a toxin category, a parasite, a bacterial, a viral, a blah, blah. But I go through my mind in these categories and I can quickly get rid of certain categories to to zone in on what I need to concentrate on. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. It's a really quick way of excluding things that are potentially unnecessary. Exactly, exactly. Second question And typically the way that I ask it is, what could you not do without when you are hunting? Now, in your context, it might be, what could you not do without when you're initially treating a bird that presents with an injury or an illness? What I cannot do without, I could not do without syringes, fluids, injectable medications, and a food source, for sure. Okay. And in essence, that's the basic triage protocol that you led us through. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. And the last question I have, and feel free to answer this on Andy's behalf, what is your or his worst habit? And the worst habit can be relative to falconry, or it could be relative to your 
medical practice? I would say, well, Andy might have a different answer than I, but as the wife of a falconer, maybe I could answer it that way. The thing that is the worst for me is for my husband to come in after he's fed and he hasn't washed his hands. I can I can fully understand that. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that as a veterinarian, you know, I'm not a germaphobe, but I like things clean. And it's like Andy's done feeding and maybe he's feeding 15 birds. And he comes over and he's talking to me and he's got feathers and blood on his hands. It's like, oh, for gosh sakes, <laughs> can you talk yeah. to me later? <laughs> Yeah, no, I can get that. That's where you need one great big syringe. And you can clean more for that. Oh, gosh. But he's very good about cleaning up after himself. But sometimes it just gets away from him. Yeah, but you know, I, I have a suspicion that, that most husbands are that way. You know, we go out, we have a, uh, in the garage, we have a small section that's uh, the food room. Or you walk out there and all the messes and clean up from the plucking and the taking parts and pieces. And it's like, it's like, oh, for goodness sake. Indeed. Anyway, this has been very useful for me, Vicki. And I really do appreciate your time. And I'm also hoping that you and I can meet again and talk about some specific things. For example, I would really like to do an episode on winter anemia. I'd like to do an episode on bumblefoot and so on and so on and so on. So if you're, if you're keen, we can schedule them out once in a while. And I have no doubt that listeners would welcome that as well. I would be more than happy to. I... I... I'm passionate about the raptors, their medicine, their well-being. It's just, it's been an honor to be able to take care of it, really, in the past. And this has been very delightful. Thank you for having me. Oh, you know, it's my pleasure. <laughs>